All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 416, This Week in Space History for March 9th through the 15th. I'm John Mulnix. I'm recording this episode on the road and I'm giving a a little test run here for my new built-in microphone on the 16-inch MacBook Pro. So it'll be exciting to see how the audio quality turns out for a built-in microphone. On March 9th, Yuri Gagarin, the first human sent into space, was born in 1934 in the Soviet Union. 62 years later, on March 9th, 1996, the Space Shuttle Columbia landed at Kennedy Space Center, successfully completing STS-65, a nearly 16-day long flight. Those 62 years between the birth of Yuri Gagarin and the launch of Columbia saw incredible historical and technological transformations across the world. Gagarin was born during the Great Purges that Joseph Stalin instituted during the years leading up to World War II. Gagarin was exposed to aviation during World War II, and that started his fascination with flying. During World War II, Nazi Germany began to develop the V-2, the first ballistic missile. This missile was a stunning technical achievement, but it wasn't as effective of a military tool as the Nazi regime hoped. The end of World War II saw the United States and the Soviet Union vying for control of the V-2s and the scientists that helped create them. Operation Paperclip was the code name for the U.S. effort to secure Nazi scientists and materiel at the close of World War II. Sadly, temporary allies became cold warriors at the end of that war. Rocket technologies based on the V-2 laid the foundation for early space flights in the Soviet Union and the United States. With the launch of Sputnik on October 4th, 1957, and later Explorer 1 on January 31st, 1958, both superpowers had reached into space with orbital satellites. It was only a matter of time before humans would follow. April 12th, 1961 is the day that humanity first reached space. Gagarin's flight on Vostok 1 orbited the Earth one time and returned safely to the Soviet Union. Vostok 1 was designed for a single occupant, and this primitive capsule is nothing like the spacecraft that would launch in the ensuing years. The Vostok capsules required that the cosmonauts would eject from the capsule to parachute to Earth rather than staying in their capsule the entire time. Here's another little factoid that kind of blew my mind. The shuttle Columbia during STS-75 carried a payload into space that was twice the weight of Vostok 1. So just the payload was double the weight of that first capsule. The shuttle Columbia could also ferry seven astronauts into space and stay for over two weeks, compared to one occupant of Vostok. 
I'm comparing these flights not to diminish Gagarin's flight, but to illustrate how much changed over those decades. The technological differences are striking, and it's also nice to note that during this time, two former enemies developed a working relationship in space, helping to ease decades of tension with the shared goal of space exploration. On March 11, 1960, Pioneer 5 was launched on a Thor Abel rocket from Cape Canaveral. This small, spin-stabilized spacecraft weighed only 94.8 pounds. Due to weight constraints, it had just enough solar cells to power the spacecraft for short periods each day. The spacecraft sent back data on, quote, magnetic field phenomena, solar flare particles, and ionization in the interplanetary region. Three million bits of data were received by tracking stations in Hawaii and New Hampshire, and three million bits of data is really small by today's standards. The file size for an average podcast episode of The Space Shot is probably between 10 and 15 megabytes. Three million bits clocks in at 0.375 megabytes, which is not exactly a lot of data by today's standards. However, since the spacecraft wasn't transmitting pictures or audio files, just ones and zeros from the data its science instruments gathered, there was a lot of information sent back to Earth. Let's fast forward a couple decades. On March 11, 2008, the Space Shuttle Endeavour lifted off on the 25th flight to the International Space Station. The payload for this shuttle flight was two international components, the Canadian-made Dexter Robotics System and the Japanese Kibo Logistics Module. Dexter, or the Special Purpose Dextrous Manipulator, attaches to Canada Arm 2 on the station or the mobile base system. I talked about the mobile base system way back in episode 22, and specifically how that component enables Canada Arm 2 to move along the station trusses, which helped astronauts build out the station as modules and components arrived. Dexter helps astronauts by conducting more time-consuming operations that typically required a spacewalk. On March 12, 1998, NASA's X-38 crew return vehicle was put through its first drop test. The X-38 was meant to be a lifeboat for the crew of the International Space Station, so testing this lifting body in a series of drop tests was the first step that would have gone on to prove the design was spaceworthy. A modified B-52 deployed the X-38 from an altitude of 23,000 feet, and a parafoil parachute inside the prototype X-38 deployed just seconds after that. This parachute was absolutely massive for the X-38. It had a surface area that was one and a half times as large as a Boeing 747's wing. The X-38's parafoil still holds the world record for the largest parafoil parachute in the history of flight at 7,500 square feet, or 698.8 square meters. NASA continued to test the X-38 from increasingly higher altitudes, eventually reaching 50,000 feet. Ultimately, this short-lived program was canceled before it had a chance to fly into space. I found it interesting that this vehicle had a lot of design elements reused from prior designs. 
According to NASA, quote, the X-38 is being developed with an unprecedented eye toward efficiency, taking advantage of available equipment and already developed technology for as much as 80% of the spacecraft's design. The design uses a lifting body concept originally developed by the Air Force X-24A project in the mid-1970s. Following the jettison of a deorbit engine module, the X-38 would glide from unpowered, like the space shuttle, and then use the steerable parafoil parachute for its final descent to landing. The culmination of this program would have seen the X-38 taken into space by a space shuttle, where it would then return to Earth from orbit, conducting a controlled re-entry and landing. Now for another shuttle mission, the Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off on March 13, 1989 on a nearly five-day-long mission to deploy the TDRS-4 satellite. These tracking and data relay satellites provide a network between spacecraft and ground controllers on Earth, and everything from the Hubble Space Telescope to the astronauts on board the ISS utilize these tracking and data satellites. I was reading through the press kit for the TDRS-4 mission and found an interesting table showing the sequence of events for the launch of Discovery. I'm linking to the launch video in the show notes, so check it out after you listen to this launch sequence. I think you'll appreciate just how quickly the shuttle accelerated after launch. The roll maneuver is one of the most striking parts of a shuttle launch. Discovery entered its roll maneuver 17 seconds into flight, traveling 242 miles an hour at an altitude of 2,749 feet. This rapid acceleration required the SSMEs, or Space Shuttle Main Engines, to throttle down to 65% of rated thrust 28 seconds into flight. At 52 seconds into flight, the shuttle was already supersonic and undergoing Max-Q, or the maximum dynamic pressure on the vehicle. After passing through Max-Q, the shuttle's engines were throttled up to 104% of their rated performance. The shuttle passed through 30,000 feet just under a minute after lifting off. The next big sequence in a shuttle flight was SRB staging at 2 minutes 6 seconds. At this point, the shuttle was traveling 2,842 miles per hour, or Mach 3.77, at an altitude of 155,892 feet. Six minutes later, at 8 minutes 32 seconds into flight, the space shuttle had MECO, or main engine, cut off. At this point, Discovery was traveling at Mach 22.7, from zero to nearly 23 times the speed of sound in eight and a half minutes. Check out the show notes for the link to Discovery's launch. I'll start the video at 10 seconds prior to liftoff, since this video is a bit longer than normal. I'm also linking to the National Space Society page that has the post-flight presentation video for this mission. During STS-29, Discovery's crew took an IMAX camera to space to film sequences for the Blue Planet documentary. As a kid, some of my most vivid memories of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science are of images of Earth and astronauts projected on that massive IMAX screen. Discovery's crew also performed experiments on protein crystal growth, plant cell division, and a heat pipe experiment that was gathering information for systems on the International Space Station. 
Now for a sad anniversary, the world-renowned physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking passed away on March 13, 2018. He's known for his seminal work, A Brief History of Time, which was published in 1988. His public lectures range from discussions on the development of life in the universe to falling into a black hole. I have links on Professor Hawking's lectures in the show notes. They're worth reading if you've got some time to contemplate your place in the cosmos. Let's remember Dr. Hawking by exploring and discussing a longer excerpt from a lecture he gave in 1996 titled Life in the Universe. I originally found this lecture two years ago when I was researching the episode on Dr. Hawking's passing. Here's a brief background on what Dr. Hawking discussed in the following paragraphs. He postulated that the information we create is changed and updated with a higher frequency than the biology that underlies human life, meaning that external information we pass down changes faster than our DNA can handle. According to Dr. Hawking, quote, This has meant that we have entered a new phase of evolution. At first, evolution proceeded by natural selection from random mutations. This Darwinian phase lasted about three and a half billion years and produced us, beings who developed language to exchange information. But in the last 10,000 years or so, we have been in what might be called an external transmission phase. In this, the internal record of information, handed down to succeeding generations in DNA, has not changed significantly. But the external record, in books and other long-lasting forms of storage, has grown enormously. Some people would use the term evolution only for the internally transmitted genetic material and would object to it being applied to information handed down externally. But I think that it is too narrow a view. We are more than just our genes. We may be no stronger or inherently more intelligent than our caveman ancestors, but what distinguishes us from them is the knowledge that we have accumulated over the last 10,000 years, and particularly over the last 300. I think it's legitimate to take a broader view and include externally transmitted information, as well as DNA, in the evolution of the human race. Dr. Hawking continues, The timescale for evolution in the external transmission period is the timescale for accumulation of information. This used to be hundreds or even thousands of years, but now this timescale has shrunk to about 50 years or less. On the other hand, the brains with which we process this information have evolved only on the Darwinian timescale of hundreds of thousands of years. This is beginning to cause problems. In the 18th century, there was said to be a man who had read every book written. But nowadays, if you were to read one book a day, it would take you about 15,000 years to read through the books in a national library by which time many more books would have been written. This has meant that no one person can be the master of more than a small corner of human knowledge. People have to specialize in narrower and narrower fields. This is likely to be a major limitation in the future. We certainly cannot continue 
for long, with the exponential rate of growth of knowledge that we have had in the last 300 years. Dr. Hawking goes on to discuss that future generations will still have the instincts and impulses of early humans, and that, combined with new technology, makes our era a dangerous time. The problem he discusses in this lecture has rapidly increased in the past decade, and not just with books, but with other forms of entertainment. How many of us start to watch a show that other people in our lives have never seen? I'm willing to bet that there are quite a few of us who have never seen Game of Thrones, Star Trek, Breaking Bad, Westworld, or any of the hundreds of other TV shows on air. What's striking is that we're becoming more specialized in our fields of study and our leisure activities. I just want to note that many of you listen to this podcast while working out or commuting and being able to take anywhere from 5, 10 to 30 minutes a day to absorb new information during an activity where you otherwise wouldn't have had the time is something that I don't know if Dr. Hawking considered. That, or maybe I'm just a little bit more hopeful, or not nearly as intelligent as Dr. Hawking. In any case, his writings and lectures will continue to spark discussion and provide insight for centuries to come. Let's lighten the mood a bit for now. It is Pie Day. March 14th is not the tasty apple pie kind of day, but Pie Day 3.14159265. 3589979 and so on. Pi is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. NASA's Take the Pie in the Sky Challenge has some great resources for Pi Day if you're interested in learning how Pi applies to space. Educators that listen to the podcast, I highly recommend you check this out. Now for a birthday on Pi Day, Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli was born on March 14, 1835. His contributions to mapping Mars are that he observed canali, which was incorrectly translated as canals instead of channels. Percival Lowell was a supporter of the artificial canals theory, so it was interesting to see how a mistranslation of a single word contributed to the popular understanding of Mars. Schiaparelli Crater on Mars is named after the famous astronomer, and if you've read The Martian by Andy Weir, you may remember that stranded astronaut Mark Watney must make his way to the Ares 4 landing site at Schiaparelli Crater. And lastly for this episode, we have liftoff of STS-119. The final set of solar arrays for the International Space Station were launched into space in the payload bay of the Shuttle Discovery on March 15, 2009. STS-119 was the 28th mission to the station, with Discovery delivering critical components and ferrying astronauts to and from the station. STS-119 had a famous stowaway at the time of liftoff. A wildlife expert concluded that the bat had a broken wing, which prevented it from flying away from the orbiter at liftoff. Actually, one more thing here. Almost forgot about it. The movie Forbidden Planet came out on March 15, 1956. This movie starred Leslie Nielsen and Anne Francis. For a movie that was made in the 1950s, it's a striking example of what was possible with practical effects and storytelling. The matte paintings are breathtaking, and when combined with beautiful set design, create an atmosphere that pulls you right into the story. 
Usually when I think of Leslie Nielsen, I think of the comedian we saw in the Airplane and Naked Gun movies. His performance in Forbidden Planet was actually really enjoyable, and I think he would have made an excellent stand-in for a captain in the Star Trek universe. Check out the show notes for links to Amazon and iTunes to rent this movie. And that is it for this week. I do have a call-in number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment. Just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.